0: Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we look at leadership. Specifically, we're into a six-month-long experiment where we can compare leaders around the world as they've responded to the crisis that has swept the globe. It seems that some leaders are immune from criticism while others get a pile on. Why is it that Jacinda Ardern is fated and anyone who criticises her is flamed on social media? Whereas if you're Donald Trump, well, nothing you do is any good at all as far as the mainstream media is concerned. So we'll be talking about that, inevitably a little bit about uh, Trump and the election. But today is mainly about leadership. Plus, as always, later on in our Books and Culture segment, we'll be talking about the best that has been spoken, written or read. Uh, Chris Berg, set out leadership for us, please.
1: Thank you, Scott. And I should point out, because you failed to do so, that we're also joined by Gideon Rosner. Um, Thank you, Chris. The- <laughs> yeah,
0: another my, my- another smick introduction from, from Uh-oh. Scott Uh-oh. Hagrid. And I'm Scott Hagrid, no, by I, I, the way.
2: I like to make an entrance. I'm like that wrestler that comes on in the middle of a match, you know. <laughs> I've only been doing this for 85
0: episodes. I'll get it right eventually.
1: Awesome. So, um, Gideon, we thought it would be fun to bring you on to discuss um, leadership mm. because you had a... Um, uh, I I thought a fairly normal range piece, like it's a good piece, don't get me wrong, but it was a normal piece in The Australian the other day, jumping off um, Jacinda Ardern's um, thumping victory in the New Zealand election. Why don't I ask you, just before we get onto the macro topic, which Scott wants to talk about, and I'd like to talk about leadership, why don't you just explain your piece, but most importantly... Most importantly, how the internet responded to your piece.
2: Yeah, so look, the piece came about because on a Sunday morning, um, Evan Mulholland, our comms director, called me and said the the Australian newspaper wants 900 words on the New Zealand election from a policy and economic point of view. And, you know, Roger Stone and Gore Vidal have a rule, you know, never turn down the opportunity to have sex or be on television and, you know... I would add to that rule, never uh, knock back the opportunity to have an op-ed in the Australian newspaper, the national paper of record. So anyway, I thought, brilliant, I'll do it. So I, I did some research, i had been following the campaign sort of tangentially, but uh, with everything else going on, it wasn't the, 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 the main thing I was about, thinking about every night, but I wrote this uh, piece, spoke to the New Zealand Institute, our counterpart across the ditch, Oliver Hartwich, very, very good bloke. Anyway. I wrote a piece on how Jacinda was a great politician, was very likeable, was brilliant on the stump and et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at her record of governance, uh, her flagship election promises have been woefully unfulfilled. Her policies would exacerbate what is already a big economic problem in New Zealand. Uh, She skated by on on perceived success over the coronavirus. What now? Anyway, published it for file to send in. And the next day I woke up and I was trending number one on Twitter in Australia, and all these people were... I mean, the, the, I could go through all of them, but the best one of all was Emma Alberici, who posted a screenshot of the relevant page the, the, of the, the Australian... The,
0: the former ABC economics correspondent. Correct, the, yeah. the,
2: the, the Revenue versus Promise economics. that Emma Alberici. Anyway, so she said a screenshot of the opinion page saying, please do not pass this off as news, this is biased... Uh, a biased piece of writing; it had opinion right at the top of the page. Mm. Anyway, so that was the long and the short of it. Then this guy, this anonymous account, started, had this idea to, to 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 tick me off to to for everybody to post pictures of Daniel Andrews with animals from you know old Stockport. So all day my name was trending on Twitter because people were posting. Sorry, you, so, da-
1: I, I don't, I, I saw that. I don't understand why Daniel Andrews standing next to animals would be. A dig at you so could you talk us through how that worked?
2: yeah it's twi- it's twitter logic chris i i i can only under- yeah. but i think the the implication was well, I don't like you know strong leaders who fought off the pandemic and i especially wouldn't like uh seeing and you know some implication that i eat puppies or something mm. something like that anyway so the, the point of it was that because i had had a go at saint jacinda uh yeah it was it was extraordinarily un- uh, you know controversial and then the reactions to that were reported in New Zealand. so, and, it, and the most bizarre thing about it was, was this was all written up as Murdoch trying to interfere with the election. Mm. She had just won by the biggest landslide in living mm. memory in New Zealand. If I was doing election interference, if the Australian was doing election interference, it wouldn't be doing a very good would job have, on it. would have been
0: the day before. Correct.
2: But but the, the side note is I've had a lot of people privately message me saying they want to subscribe to the Australian uh, because the newspapers back in Kiwi land are not doing the job that they should be doing, which is actually applying scrutiny beyond isn't just great, you know, she smiles. And, and everything else but look imagine I, imagine
0: living in that echo chamber I, that, that I, is I, the new zealand media
2: I, I should well well yeah correct i mean we, we think we have problems here they uh living in pravda land over there but as a postscript i'll just say the great irony is i actually quite like jacinda ardern i i don't agree with her politics and i do believe she's had a woeful record in government but as a political practitioner as a person i think she's lovely but this is the thing: you cannot separate the personal from the administrative and the the core business of government. Um, it's all wrapped up. And any, and this is what we're finding out with Dan, and this is what we'll get onto. But any criticism, even from a dry, in, dispassionate, professional public policy point of view, um, is 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 either seen as conspiratorial or as somebody who doesn't care about the pandemic and the coronavirus and and won't. Doff their hat to the leader that saved our lives. It's a very, it's 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 emblematic of a very disturbing or very
0: warped, yeah, it's, political trials. It's, it's emblematic so. of a so lot. So let's, yeah. I just want to comment on the media, Chris, yeah. before we get to the substance of it. Um, the one, the interesting thing about that media coverage, and you know, uh, we might actually find that screenshot uh, that Evan had of the worldwide media coverage. The other thing, uh, the coverage that your column got tells you mm. is that all over the world. Board subs and editors were noticing that all of the coverage of Jacinda was "isn't she amazing?" Model of global leadership, yep. Saint Jacinda of Wellington, and they're like, "Oh God, there must be somebody who's had a crack," you know. Search tap tap <laughs> tap 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 tap. And I'm in. Oh, there's some. Oh, okay. There's some guy in Australia. Well, let's let's run that, you know. And and that's all they had. Yeah. That's all they had, Chris. Yeah. All right. So, why why uh, why is that the case? Pour up.
1: Pour out one for the poor sub editors. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think this is interesting. So so this got me thinking about the um, the experience that we're having as you as you've suggested at the at the top of the show, Scott. So we're now six months into a global crisis. What's interesting about that is it allows us to see how very distinct individual leaders, very distinct national cultures, have responded to basically the same crisis. Every single country has been dealing with the COVID pandemic, um, and they have responded in very, very different ways. Now, Jacinda Ardern, I agree 100% with your um your, your, and and the analysis that you presented, Gideon, in your, um, in your Australian piece, the, uh, but fundamentally, the Australians who are yelling at you on Twitter don't care about New Zealand's housing policy, mm. and they don't care about, um, uh, what the even the New Zealand economy, how it's performing. They care about Jacinda Ardern mm. as a, as an icon of rational leadership or something along those lines, what it looks like to have a strong leader in a time of pandemic. Now, whether that is a fair assessment or not, I I, I don't think it is fair because I, I don't think it's reasonable to um, judge uh, the New Zealand example against the US example or the British example uh, for, for reasons that were discussed in detail on the show. But it's all about that response to COVID, and when they're reading that um, uh, Oliver Hartwich has described them as described her as incompetent, they're responding to. But but she's not incompetent. Of course, she dealt with the crisis of our time. Is that a fair? It, it, do you think that's what's going on? Or, I think and, it's and ab- what do you think that says about leadership? I think
2: it's time? absolutely what's going on. But as always, all roads lead to Dan. You're absolutely right. This is... <laughs> and, and but, but seriously, though, because in Victoria, this is the same dynamic, the same deep and, and widening polarisation... Over Dan, you know, there are people who are baying for his blood, arguably, I believe now, a majority of the state. But there is also that other constituency that, as you said, doesn't particularly care about bread and butter issues. Um, Why would they care about the unemployment rate in Victoria? Why would they care about closed shop fronts other than, you know, maybe their favourite kombucha dispensary or something like that? it is about protecting that model of what leadership should like, that projection of what leadership should like that, and I think there is there is now this differing view or th- this this we are seeing really in sharp relief what the left what progressives arguably want the nation state to be. It should not be you know it certainly shouldn't be the night watchman state that somebody like mm-hmm. me should favor it shouldn't be boring sort of humdrum, uh, you know, make sure the trains run on time, that sort of thing. It really is a tool and a mechanism and a vehicle for social change and for, you know, social justice, for dismantling just power structures. You know, you know the left-wing talking mm. point point's as good as I do. Um, they have had that with Daniel Andrews. They have had somebody who is very prominent, who has molded the objectives of government around, around keeping us safe and, sa- and safetyism is one of their core tenets of belief, these so, people. Um, any any reference of even clearly deficient performance by Daniel Andrews, up to and including hiring a bunch of out of work bouncers on WhatsApp to guard hotel quarantine, that is not just seen as as being an invalid criticism or wrong or misguided or misinformed, but but deeply. Uh yeah, the, tr- tr- it, it, almost yeah, a kind of treason. Yeah, yeah. The red guards come out on on Twitter. And, yeah. Uh, um, so it's the same dynamic, Chris. I think you're onto something there.
0: And and yeah. still on the theme of leadership, Chris, um, the thing that I, that I find fascinating about this this cult of leadership, like the um, uh, in the classic formulation, uh, supposedly it's the right that you know believes in strong leaders. But wow, um, who who is it that believes in strong leaders if not the left? But then, so they have this cult of leadership and they love their saints like Jacinda. But then there's this extreme malleability about what, what the leadership actually the leadership style is meant to be. So Saint Jacinda is a saint because it's about inclusive leadership. Uh, and clearly, she she is a very relatable. Well, she included Winston Peters in her uh, cabinet. So. Yeah, a very relatable human. Being and Excess, excessively inclusive, in my in, yes, uh, yes, <laughs> and including him no more. <laughs> yeah, up to, yeah that's bye right. bye. Bye, one, bye. One has to draw the, the line. At on the way out. Well, that's right. But again, she got a part. You get a pass for that yeah. because it's Saint Jacinda. And then, but then also, but Dan Andrews is also a model of leadership, even though he is the most unempathetic, you know, terribly dull machine man of politics. Um, who uh, bullies journalists in his press conference? Mm. One might even say, particularly for some reason, female journalists like Rachel, Rachel Blacksendale, um, uh, Gabriella Power, uh, yeah, yeah, Peter yeah. Credlin, yeah, Alex, well, Alex, Alex Smith. Peter, Peter Credlin can handle it. So, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, well, just, so, just in terms of style, could not be further from Jacinda Ardern in terms of style. But that is also somehow a great example of leadership. So this. This, this commentary well, around leadership you. falls down straight away because it actually has no relationship either to actual competence mm. or to style. So what is it well, other a, than just rallying behind the, the dear leader? No, I'll tell you exactly what it is.
1: It's a denial of the existence of politics. So you're right. Dan Andrews is the definition of a machine Labor premier. Um, and he was most as, is, as is
2: Jacinda Ardern, I might add. I mean, she, you know, she's not. She's just nicer. A country. Well, but, exactly. But she, she worked but, her way up the greasy pole like everybody else. But, but,
1: yeah. But the but what their their leadership style, quote leadership style during this crisis, has to be to deny the existence of politics. So there's nothing. The last mm. thing that Dan Andrews wants to project is politics. On the stage now, he's 100 percent doing politics. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, and 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 we can go into that. But every time he gets up there on the press conference, he reads the numbers of um, infections and the total list. That is a deliberate decision yeah. to remove politics from the equation. And you've seen over recent. Weeks when, um, particularly, the federal government, Victorians in the federal government have been attacking him. His response is, Well, you know, they may want to play politics with this crisis, but I don't play politics. Now, Jacinda is doing exactly the same thing as well and is trying to broadcast this post politics message. It's a sort of post politics technocracy. It's almost a post populism technocracy. And I think that. It works if you look at the polls. I think it's it's a very popular style, but it comes crashing to earth when it is revealed that there is just politics there. And I think that's also what's going on with um, uh, Dan Andrews at the moment, where we're starting to see, well, he's being chased by scandal after scandal after scandal. But before we... Uh, it, again, it's really hard not to talk about the situation in Victoria, so mm. we will indulge ourselves. But if, if I can ask you, Gideon, just to respond to that idea that, that what the definition of leadership in this crisis or the, quote, successful leadership everybody praises is that idea of it's leadership after politics, if you know what I mean. There's no politics involved.
2: You, you're right. I think that's a, a, I think that's a, a sort of textbook political manoeuvre, which is to... And John Howard used to do this brilliantly, you know, to float above the fray, to let, let the politicians take care of politics and the statesmen take care of matters of state. But that's certainly been exacerbated now I think this and this is what you could see all the premiers do this each and every one of them uh, and the prime minister frankly um, when this reared its ugly head you know the formation of the national cabinet all the briefings they really did think beautiful you know uh, we see what happens to state premiers during cyclones and floods and fires and things like that um, the reason there is still an Auslan interpreter there uh, and, and we're still seeing these press conferences is because it's all... all the, and the North Face jacket, all of it is modelled after seeing a Premier in, in the control room taking control. This isn't the leader of the Labor Party and the... Um, you know, so, and, and a politician. This is your leader, this is the Premier. So they've tried to do that. The problem is they've tried to do it for the better part of the year and it just doesn't work that way. Politics always creeps in, as it should, because... You know, John Roskam has written about this. This idea of unity in the face of a crisis is serving us very, very poorly. We need, for better or worse, our adversarial political system. But uh, look, as a political tactic, it will continue to work because the 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 the, ter- the terror with which the. Um, the political class has filled the population. Hmm. Lends itself makes the population very amenable to but this. I, I Look, this. This is just, too so scary for politics. That 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 will win the day for a little while longer. I, I think. I think that's a really interesting observation. I think it's slightly different
1: from a consensus model of politics that has hmm. been. So so um I I once wrote a piece. Do you remember the twenty twenty summit? Yeah. Um, twenty Kevin Andrews. Uh, sorry, Kevin Andrews. Kevin Rudd's 2027. Turns out 2020 has been quite different. What was <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I wrote a piece that um, sunk like a stone at the time, which is to point out that the um, that the contest of politics is actually desirable. Mm. That we want this because politics is about big differences of opinion about the shape of the country or jurisdiction that we live in you know some people want something else and we use politics to to um try to work out those differences or or come to an agreement about um who gets to decide in any given moment now the 2020 summit was this sort of consensus style politics where you could get everybody in a room and you could discuss rationally the biggest challenges and we could all come to an agreement my piece was pushing Back against that, but I don't think what we're seeing now is "quote consensus politics." I don't think it's being driven by a consensus. I think it's being driven by authority. Mm. Um, It's it's a it's a that we have the authority of public health officials. We have authority of the experts. We've handed control over to the chief health. Officer, you'll notice that Dan Andrews cannot make a, um, uh, cannot deliver an instruction or make a rule without saying, "Following public health advice, we are doing this." Um, that's not a consensus model of politics. That's an authority yeah. model of politics, and it's an authority,
2: and it's an authority that's derived in a technocratic way. This is authority yeah. from you know, it's it's a rise of the expertocracy. And I mean, that was yeah. inevitable that we'd have a hack. And you not trust the experts when all we, we've heard from, you know, one side of the debate on climate change is that for the better part yeah, of twenty but, years. But, but here's- and,
1: and historically, historically we've been sorry. This is fun. I'm just thinking of new ideas off the yeah. top of my head. So, so just indulge me, everyone. Um, Always. historically, this is super interesting. So the reason that we have all these independent regulatory agencies like the ACCC, the reason that they're independent from government, is because governments or politicians, I should say. Don't want to take responsibility for the decision sometimes mm-hmm. for good reasons because you don't want politicians to use the regulatory state for political purposes but partly because they just they, they want to be able to hand off control they don't they don't want it to be political because they can't see how it has really any strong upside for them to take responsibility for the rules that they're imposing on on the rest of us but, but- and i think that's what's happening right now just at a at a at, at an incredible pace and an An incredible, um, incredibly coercive and oppressive way.
0: But this is why I think we. This is why it's so critical to unpack this. And and it was a good theme uh, to select for today. Thank you, uh, Chris, about leadership because um, it takes me back to uh, a a lot of readings I've done over the year uh, in sort of management and 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 uh, leadership literature because. We've seen the dangers of it. This, so, as you say, this is a great case study. And what we're seeing is the, the dangers of this approach that, that is so politically convenient um, to try for politicians to rely on the technocracy. And what we've seen in Victoria through the Code Inquiry, of course, is this unravelling of the narrative because what we've seen is that it's an, actually an intensely political process, an intensely, intensely centralised decision-making process where things always stop with Dan Andrews, but there's a denial about this. And it takes me right back to uh, one of the uh, paradigmatic cases of leadership uh, in democracies, which is um, uh, John F. Kennedy. And this is really one of the great case studies that you study in leadership and decision-making. Um, if Leon Mann's listening, uh, thank you for that MBA course. It was very uh, edifying. <laughs> and, um, and his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, wrote this book, 13 Days, which is an absolute cracker. And the contrast is between The Bay of Pigs... Uh, invade the decision to invade Cuba with you know uh, uh, an undertrained, under-equipped force without without any commitment to American follow-up to try and topple um, uh, Castro, uh, which was it was a debacle. But it had consensus from the technocracy all yeah. around his cabinet table. They all backed it, the joint chiefs. And it's decision.
1: Stuff. It's. A decision that was never clearly made, if I understand.
0: So <laughs> yeah, the it, creeping sort of, decision, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, 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 but, that, but that's right. And, 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 I mean, without going into just management style here. Um, no, I want I to. This that, is the point. yeah.
0: No, sorry. you okay, Go on, please. Well, so, yes. So um, the, the, to John F. Kennedy's credit, he learnt from that and said, I'm never doing mm. that again. Mm. That is classic group think. I've got 25 people around the table who are supposed to be experts, but they're all telling me the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then guess what happened after? It was a disaster. Well, a few of them said, well, actually, I had my doubts, Mr. President, but, you know, hey, the I was reading the room. Yeah. I was reading the room and, you know, so I went with it. Yeah. So uh, he used his brother is Attorney General in the Cabinet. So the next time around it was the Cuban Missile Crisis and he said, I'm not going to do that again Mm. because the Joint Chiefs of Staff thought that a couple of well-placed thermonuclear devices could have actually taken care of the whole thing. (laughs) Uh, And then where would we be? So instead he got uh, his brother to sound out all the silent voices around the table to actually have a contest of ideas Mm. to force them to come up with options. So this is where... This is the danger of the Aderns and the Andrews's, um, because in their search for this political strategy of consensus, of the technocracy has ruled, there are no alternatives, this is how it must be. They, are clo- they close themselves off to that contest of ideas. Everyone says how outrageous it is that Trump dumps on Fauci. I would much rather have a president who has a health advisor and he says, good guy, got a lot of things right but got some things wrong Mm -hmm. which I don't agree with. I would much rather have that than just saying, well, there's Brett Sutton. Yeah. Brett Sutton says I have to do it, therefore I have to do it. This is the,
2: this is the medical advice. Well, we, well yeah. there are 10 Screw opinion that. pieces from epidemiologists saying this is wrong. Yeah, well, the medical advice we have, and that's the medical advice, and it's the medical advice because that's the medical advice, the medical advice we appointed. I mean, this yeah. is the... And, and, endless, and the reaction just, to your look. piece
0: shows how much emotional investment there is, how much political capital is tied up with this strategy. Yeah. Because you, you pricked that bubble... Mm. And that's what they hate. Because yeah. once that breaks down, they got nothing to hide behind. Have they, Chris? Yeah. Right
1: on. No, no, they don't. No. Thank you, Scott. Um, so, uh, but, but people like it. So, I mean, Jacinda Ardern, again, won a thumping victory. And um, I suspect, well, maybe, maybe it is changing, but if Dan Andrews had gone to an election um, a month ago, he would have also won a thumping victory, even as case numbers were going up. Um, Gideon, why why do you think that that works? Why why do you think this sort of distancing yourself from the actual decisions, but taking responsibility or taking credit for when you win and and uh, kicking off when you lose? Uh, why, why does that why does that work politically? Well,
2: I, think- I mean, it works on a, on a sort of macro level. I guess it works because we are a. Country now, or uh, the entire Western world, I think suffers from this. We we do fetishise credentials. We do fetishise expensive pieces of paper with a name on it. We we fetishise experts, and there is a huge strain of science worship uh, going through certain parts of the political uh, economy. Now, by that I don't mean <clears throat> that experts are all idiots or that we shouldn't uh, believe in in science, but we believe in the scientific method, not science worship. Not listen, you know, the, not the uh, well, Brett Sutton says it, so it has to be true, that kind of thing. And in relation to experts, of course, there are people who should be around the table with uh, professionally relevant opinions and, you know, genuine technical knowledge, but they should be voices among many and that should be taken into account by the leaders that we elect to come up with decisions that uh, are on balance best for for everybody. Uh, this deferring to experts... Um, you know, it certainly hasn't given us the best policy outcomes, to put it mildly, during this pandemic. But the other other issue is that uh, on a macro level, it's the politics of fear. I think p- people... Oh, well, good, this person knows what's going on. Fantastic. Uh, yes, of course, we'll trust them. But on a day-to-day political level as well... Um, Think about it. Daniel Andrews has been able to main this, maintain this fiction that he's been completely open and transparent despite not answering a single question because he rocks up at these press conferences every day. He doesn't have to answer questions because anything that gets too uncomfortable for him, he says, well, you know, that's the expert advice and I don't make the decisions here. It's all done by expert. I think it's a very, very useful political ploy because if there's no... If you can't speak to why a decision has been made, there's never any accountability, and you can't mm. be criticised for making the wrong decision because they're not. Your, that's not your reasoning. Nobody can pick any holes. It's all a, a occurring in this opaque yeah. public sector land.
0: And 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 it is. I mean, maybe one of the things, Chris, to answer your question about why does it work is, uh, it is also a sign of the wider fetishisation fetishisation, it's such a good word, Gideon, I'll learn to pronounce it eventually, Uh, do it nearly as well as you do, Uh, of of, of this idea of of leadership. I mean, you've made a point about uh, Trump's campaign in America, uh, Chris, uh, which I think is relevant to this. So so Trump as president, you know, it's both leadership and management. It's an executive office, as, as all political offices should be seen as. And... The worst moments of Trump's campaign have actually been when he's focused on his leadership like it's a thing in itself um, and it's just all about, you know, Trump and Trump's personality and Trump, 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 Trump. And the most effective elements of the campaign is actually when they turn it back to what he's done as an executive, be it mm. be it tax cuts, the employment record, um, uh, progress amongst minority communities in employment and, and criminal justice, um, and... And that ultimately will be what's decided. But this idea that you can divorce leadership from management in any field. Um, I mean, Peter Drucker, another great management guru, always said this was a complete fantasy, the idea that there is this thing called leadership, which is in any way separate to your ability to actually manage the office you hold. Mm. Once you separate them, you're in the realm of the performative. And and indeed, uh, that's Yuval Levin's point... Um, Uh, which is that uh, institutions all over the world, political leaders all over the world, have now got so much focus on the performative that they're no longer interested in management. And these are the results That's why you
1: should should never read leadership books. You should only read management books.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You know, 20 20, 20 years... And it is amazing. You spent 20 years as an amazing manager of an organisation and leave it in better shape than you found it. And in the end, uh, the encomiums will all be he was a terrific he or she was a yeah, terrific leader yeah, yeah. like yeah, yeah. like that's how you decide that's how you decide <laughs> well some, well somebody um, once
2: so told me like- that you lead by you know years ago in politics i think it was in my first year of university and somebody said in, in politics you lead with respect not authority and that's absolutely true you need and the way you get respect is by doing you know an understated, good old fashioned, good job. Uh, and, and Daniel Andrews is leading with authority, both with legal authority, uh, but also with the authority of uh, the roughly, you know, 20, 25%, 30% of the, the um, state who, We'll, we'll, we'll have a go at you for daring to criticise him. It's, it's so can we? Can we before?
1: Portable. I mean, we're all itching also to get on to Donald Trump because that's because uh, you just do so much. Yeah, yeah. Ah, and
0: Bolsonaro. But, but let's, <laughs> let's not forget Bolsonaro. I don't
1: know. And Bolsonaro.
0: <laughs> let's. I,
1: I, I think. I think it would be worth just reflecting for a few minutes that there is a prime minister in Australia that we don't often talk about. That we ha- also have a national leader. Given all that we've said about leadership. Um, Gideon, how is Scott doing? Um,
2: Look, I think... (laughs) I just want the pause. Yeah, 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 yeah. That'll be the promo. How is Scott doing? Uh, Look, no, look... (sighs) I think he, he's perceived to be doing really well. I think the I, I think he does have goodwill in the community. I think the polls are are, are accurate. I, they're showing him you know ahead and doing pretty well. But look, that's what happens when you give uh, money to people uh, to not to work, I suppose. Um, and splash cash around the economy like it's going out of fashion. Um, How's he doing? Well, look, I think the problem with Scott Morrison was that he tried to go for the performative leadership style up front. I think he came into it knowing that he had something to prove because he'd been wrapped over the knuckles, rightly or wrongly, uh, because of his performance during the bushfires at the start of the year. So he wanted to... Project more than anybody. I think this leadership. That's why he had the national cabinet. That's why he had. You know, he had his press conferences in the prime minister's courtyard. The problem for Scott Morrison is that being prime minister of Australia, probably more than premiers, involves a big element of management, particularly fiscal management. And the dynamic quickly developed where the state premiers could be as performative as they like uh, by putting the wrecking ball through their economies, knowing they hadn't didn't have to pick up the tab. Sadly, Scott Morrison does, and he has to preside over a country that's capable of servicing the debt that picking up the tab involves. Um, but, you know, ScoMo is... When you talk about performative leaders, uh, and I don't say this because I think he's doing a bad job. I think he's doing a an adequate job. I don't... You know, I, I think he's doing a better job than not most of the time. But in terms of being performative leaders, he is brilliant at it. Uh, and that's why we on the right tend to be a little bit soft on ScoMo a lot of the time, because he's not Malcolm Turnbull and because he managed to win... The 2019 election, uh, ScoMo's light of style of leadership, such as it is, or, you know, so to speak, is intensely performative. Uh, and my criticism of him always is that he doesn't back it up with with courageous enough reform. Uh, even though I suppose he is a competent manager.
1: Fundamentally, it's a weird position to be in right now. Of course, to be the Prime Minister of Australia at a you know six month period, where being Prime Minister of Australia has been that has never been less important or or uh, never had less profile. Yeah. The premiers right now completely dominate the national landscape. Um yeah. that's It's like eight,
2: it's, it's like eight state elections happening at once. We
1: yeah it is. We talk so, but it's 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 more, we're focused much more on um uh, the premiers than even during a state election I think. Nationally we spend a lot of time talking about Individual policy settings, not just in Victoria, but you know, we talk a lot more about um, corruption in New South Wales. We talk a lot more about the the New South Wales Queensland border. We talk a lot more about this stuff than we do the national um, uh, the national political stage. And just reflecting, we also talk a lot more about um, some of Scott Morrison's subordinates than we do Scott Morrison. Himself, we talk a lot more about Josh Frydenberg, who's mm. actually got a much more significant leadership profile than the Prime Minister right now. Now that that might be, there might be reasons for that, but it's that that performative style, which I agree with you, is you know, the Scotty from marketing um, line actually works. Yeah, like does, <laughs> there's it, an element of truth it, to it. It resonates. It resonates really well. It just hits him quite hard. But but the point is that the Prime Minister, like a lot of executive, a uh, lot, lot of Chief Executive roles around the world is a performative function, so you're supposed to embody something about the nation, and um, uh, because most of your responsibilities is in foreign policy, um, you you, you sort of stand up and make performative speeches about how you see the government's travelling. Right now, all that function is being done by the premiers. So it's not surprising that the primary function of the Commonwealth government is fiscal policy, mm. um, and that's Josh Frydenberg's position. So I, I agree with you. He's not doing terribly. Um, I, I would struggle to come to a conclusion about how he's doing. He's obviously doing well in the polls, um, but but whether he's doing well or not, it's sort of, in a weird way, the Prime Minister is one of the least important senior officers.
0: Yes, senior might have officers I, I, will offer country, this,
2: right? I will offer this prediction. I think he will lose the next election. Um, and the reason for that is you
1: could could probably say that just on, on the basis that eventually governments lose elections. (laughs) Oh,
2: well, that's true. I mean, in terms of the political cycle, but also, no, but I think, I think people are averse to changing prime ministers yet again, but no prime minister, no leader of any government can survive the financial apocalypse we're about to see. So, uh, you know, uh, look. Maybe he can, you know, print enough money to uh, keep things, you know, relatively cushioned uh, up until the, you know, debt bomb explodes in fifty years when it's somebody else's problem. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't, th- I think he's travelling okay now, but I don't think he'll win.
0: And just on, still on the state premiers, it occurs to me, Chris, like we're not going to go in depth today, but um, we're going to see a state election in Queensland where the, where uh, Premier Palaszczuk is clearly benefiting from a campaign which has revolved around just keeping everyone else out. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's been a very straightforward But that's pretty predictable.
1: You can win an election in Queensland by being against Victoria. Well, well,
0: this, this is what I mean. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like, so if you if you want to keep migrants out, you're a right, right-wing racist. If you want to keep Victorians out, then you're a strong, powerful, that's the only inclusive progressive leader. <laughs> it's the only acceptable progressive position. And, but that's an and, interesting and, and point in and itself. And, 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 and so as long as I'm, a, as I'm on premiers, though, the, yeah. the other one, of course, is... Um, uh, Gladys Berejiklian, and um, because on, on Twitter for the last two weeks, all it's been is anything you say about uh, 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 Dictator Dan in Victoria, it's like, oh, well, what about Gladys? So I just wanted to get it on the record, is that in the context of this leadership versus management thing, Gladys is in a, a crisis of leadership, and she mm. might even be in a, in a legal crisis, and it might well cost her the... It may be a terminal it, crisis, yeah. it, it probably is terminal. Yeah, I would say so. So Dictator Dan's not in a leadership crisis... Dictator Dan is in a management crisis. Mm. Gladys is not in a management crisis. Now, where would I rather be living right now? Yeah. Sydney or Melbourne? Yeah. So for all, just to say, because I can't be bothered on Twitter, for everyone who's like, oh, when are you going to say something about Gladys? My, as far as I'm concerned, Gladys hasn't stuffed my life. Yeah. If I was living in, if I was magically transported to Sydney, I'd be able to say Gladys has not stuffed my life. Yeah. She's probably stuffed her career um, and, and might well pay a price, but she hasn't stuffed my life or those of my friends or those of yeah. the businesses first, who are going test. bankrupt.
1: Well. Will the Premier let me outside? (laughs)
0: Yes, that's right. Are are you happy to sit there and watch all these businesses go Uh, bankrupt? uh, Are the pubs open? In Victoria, the answer is yes. Uh. Yes, the Premier is happy to watch all those businesses go bankrupt. Is Gladys happy to see all those businesses go bankrupt? No. And one mm. of the reasons, by the way, is she's still got cabinet government. Yeah. She's got um, uh, Dominello and... Dominic um, Perrottet. Dominic Perrottet. Yeah, Damien Jude uh, Hope, those uh, people, balance, yeah. Balancing the advice. Well, that, well that's my mail. In the JFK
2: manner. Well, that's my mail from people who are, you know, close to the New South Wales division of the Liberal Party that Gladys, uh, uh, you know, from, from what I understand, that Gladys w- w- was possibly leading towards, you know, uh, Tightening up things just mm. a bit, so they controlled their second wave. And it was the cabinet process, the actual Westminster, good old fashioned, mm. no frills, no press conferences, you know, just bare bones, management focused government that avoided that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, maybe if Dan had to listen to Martin Pecula a bit more, um, things might be a little bit so, different.
1: But, so, so, Gideon, mm. management or leadership crisis, what do you see Donald Trump's situation? is at the
2: moment well donald trump is uh uh you know fighting uh a crisis every day in a uh, deep state a left-wing mainstream media and uh deeply unpatriotic subset of the population that wants to stop him from making america great again so to clarify
1: a management
2: crisis (laughs) Uh, yeah well look but but i've always said maybe not that prominently but i've always said that you know you know, I'm, I'm a big Trump fan. I, I haven't always been, mind you. I, I was somewhat sceptical right up until he was elected and then started cutting taxes and cutting red tape and um, blowing up the bureaucratic managerialist industrial complex as we know it. You know, I think that's great. But I digress. Um, I've always said that as, as issues goes, corona was never going to work for Trump. It is a an issue where you do need somebody who is going to come out, and the first thing they do at a press conference is read numbers. You do need somebody who is more technocratic. Not only is Donald Trump not a technocrat, he's, he was elected for the precise reason that he is not somebody who has this belief in the the efficiency and the, the omnipresence of government solving the world's problems. But... I think that well that's what will make this election so fascinating this is and the thing about 2020 is you couldn't have timed it better everything's been running basically from january and the crescendo i believe will be a re-elected trump because the democrats have run basically on corona they can't run on the economy they certainly can't really run on black lives matter stuff anymore because that won't bring in any people who wouldn't vote for them anyway um i think this will be a referendum on Corona and. People will say, well, you know, while Trump hasn't been perfect and has said a few silly things, uh, who wants to keep those businesses shuttered? Who wants to get me back to work? Who is gonna stuff my life less? Uh, And there are a whole manner of things on on Trump I could continue to talk about, um, but I suspect we'll get into that conversation. But overall, I think that this wretched year in which we have seen the nation state hurt ordinary people in a way that we never, ever, ever, ever have in peacetime, that will be... The the great catharsis of that will be Trump, who unambiguously said, said literally, don't let this virus control your life. When you now, look at the, so, the United States of America, these are not people... You know, this is not Liechtenstein. Oh, no, Liechtenstein is a very bad example. This isn't, uh, you know, some European social democracy where people are used to the model of government that Jacinda and Dan proposed. These, these are American people. There is something inbuilt within them where that don't let it re- control your life. We want to be reopened. We want to rebuild. We want to get on with it. I think that will resonate ultimately. I really do. So what's your read what, of the race? as
1: it stands so we're two weeks or so in fact we're almost exactly two weeks out from election day um uh, listeners will be excited to know that we will have a uh, podcast the day after
2: <laughs> oh really um uh, to, oh, to make oh, sure oh, that we'll it? be able to talk yeah about
0: we'll, it push it, in, we'll push it we'll push it back you'll push it back
2: yeah because it's 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 wednesday our time um, um yeah well, so uh, I, what's and, my read of the ra- And then you'll
1: be spared my hot takes um uh, but so what's your read of the um state of the race
2: uh the, the state of the race so look you know, I predicted on this program months and months ago that he would win 40 states. I stand by that prediction just because I want to be able to then put, you know, put it on my social media that that hashtag Rosner was right, but I digress. Um, look, I, 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 I've had dark nights of the soul and I've worried and it's hard when you see, you know, people like yourself, frankly, Chris, who are saying, well, hang on, the polls are going a certain way. When you see, you know, reasonable media sources starting to doubt that he will win, but I just don't see any other element of this other than the polls and other than the fact that Trump, you know, had maybe a bad debate that is pointing to a win here. Firstly, it's 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 rare uh, for a first-term government, uh, president to be, de- to, to be defeated. And when that happens, you need somebody with star power and that generates enthusiasm. You need a Ronald Reagan who defeated Jimmy Carter, or you need a Bill Clinton who managed to, um, you know, who had his problems but was able to give a compelling... Positive, optimistic vision in contrast to sort of Bush's stale, you know, years as normal and so on. Uh, You look at the enthusiasm gap, you look at the rate of voter registrations, you look at anecdotal reports of the yard signs, you see parades of people, you know, Hispanic people going down the main avenue in Miami, Florida with big Trump. Flags and banners and so on. You see the Telemundo poll after the first debate, the the debate that was so shocking and so terrible and so unedifying and so unmanagement like, uh, where Telemundo, the Spanish language. Network in the U.S. said that, Trump, that their snap poll of readers, uh, of viewers, said that Trump won that debate like 66 to 33. These are people, not just people with Hispanic ancestry, people who watch the Spanish language network. This was this is a core constituency of the Democrats. There, are, there is strong evidence that African Americans are starting to turn away from the Democrats. I, 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 I can't see. I, I just can't see it. I just cannot see. A, a way in which Biden could pull this off. I, I, I just don't see the turnout for him.
1: Do you want to explain um, uh, I think it's interesting to talk about this. So so the polls um, uh, show nationally that Biden's up about 10 points or yeah. so, between 7 and 10 and sometimes higher. Um, do you want to explain the argument that those might be systemically wrong? Um, so the the shy Trump effect or shy Tory Effect that might be hiding large numbers of pro-Trump vote in those
2: polls. Yeah, well, look, it's not—it's a pretty well-worn theory, but the, the its it's—it's been described as the shy Tory effect, which is that owning up to wanting to vote for Donald Trump is so unpopular, just like criticizing Jacinda Ardern. Apparently, that you know, if some—if a pollster rings you up in the middle of dinner and says, "Which way do you vote?" you inherently—it's uh, like the polls we're seeing on do you support stage four restrictions. I think those are being a little bit um, contaminated by. The fact that it's it's unpopular to say certain things. I, I think there's a section of the American electorate that uh, th- thinks our oh, pollsters they're just another part of the swamp and deliberately wants to
0: yeah.
2: uh, not cooperate with them. Um,
0: and th- this was some of this was played out in a uh, podcast we both listened to. Uh, Rich Lowry on the editors yeah. uh, interviewed uh, a, a Republican-aligned pollster in the U.S. Uh, Trafal Group. Trafalgar Group CEO, Robert Cahali, and he, and he stepped out at a number of things yeah. that introduced the bias. And one of them, actually, you just point then, you know, somebody rings you up during dinner. Now, you're a professor of fine arts at Yale, and somebody rings you up after dinner and wants to know what you're going to do in the election. Yeah, yeah, well
2: yeah, thank you, old
0: chap. Especially
2: you know, and he made this point, especially when those surveys go for like half an hour.
0: That's right. Yeah. As as opposed to a Trump voter in the Midwest yeah. who's just come back from their second job and they're yeah. trying trying to get the dinner organized for Correct. the family and, and some joy brings up and says, Have you got half an hour to talk about the election? It's like, no, no. absolutely not. Um, or it's going to be like, um, uh, you know, they've, they've got the list of who's a registered voter. Well, these are people that have never ne- would never have voted for um, uh, George Bush uh, senior or junior or whatever. Mm. So that they're, not, they're not even rung up in the first place. But they'll vote for Trump. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not, we'll find out whether all this is true. But he does, uh, this uh, true believer, Robert Kahali, does step out the ways that... Um, Uh, the polls can be systematically biased against people voting for Trump Mm. before you even get to the the fact that they're just not going to yeah. tell a pollster yeah. that they're a Trump voter. And, so, the, and the other so, thing that
2: polls don't tend to measure is um, like, likely voters. I mean, the, the real clear politics poll aggregates all of them. Very few of them, uh, as far as I'm aware, measure people who are likely to vote. Or, uh, and there's no real way of gauging whether somebody will in the final analysis get out in the cold. When you look at the fired-up Trump base versus the, you know, uh, the, 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 the Biden sort of coalition, I just don't see that they will get the numbers of people... You know, they they have to get turnout. They have to get millennials to vote for a way that they didn't even need to vote for Barack Obama at this point. And the other poll that's worth mentioning is a poll that was done asking, "Is your are you better or worse off than you were four years ago?" And 56% of people said yes. Now that's not a bigger number than any you know than, than Obama got. Bush certainly got. Or I think even Clinton got. So when you when you have that, uh, that, that that's that's interesting. Oh, and the other poll I will finally mention is the the polls that say which way do you think your neighbour is voting, and those are very strongly pro-Trump. So I think that points to some uh, at least some perception that he's up. Maybe that'll that won't work for him. Maybe it will take random Doc Sanders.
1: Can I can I give you my personal? Um Uh, response to that of course just the my (laughs) I lived through it was not that long ago I lived through the 2012 unskew the polls movement which um, was supposed to suggest that the Republicans would take the um, presidency in 2012 and I also lived through again back to the Kevin Rudd era where we were told over and over and over that, in fact, by the left, in fact, that the polls were secretly not um, uh, were being controlled by News Limited. They were doing so for corporate reasons. um, And then they weren't revealing the deep strength that Labor had actually out there in the community. So I, I, I think it's very hard to get away from the fact that the only we don't we don't know the true state of the world. But the way that we know, the the best way to know the true state of the world or the best window that we have into them is polls. Mm. Now, I think there's really good reasons that you wouldn't have these systemic um, uh, shy Trump things. First of all, the 2016 election was an absolute disaster for a large number of polling companies. Those polling companies, their main business is not election polls. Their main business is corporate polling. So to poll whether you've heard about a different product, do you prefer this brand of chicken versus that brand of chicken? The election polls, political polls, are actually just a a branding exercise for them. If those polling companies are getting the electorate systemically wrong, that is deeply harming their economic interests in selling themselves to companies who want to poll chicken brands um so uh, my my instinct in this actually is that after 2016 they will have gone so hard to rectify any possible or identified problems that came out of 2016 that they well might be oversampling republicans Mm. because polls absolutely get it wrong they are always going to get it wrong in some way. Uh, but it turns out they don't systematically get it wrong to one side or the other.
0: I, I, I think there's a flaw in your logic, actually, Chris. I'm sorry. It's, okay, a, it's, please, an, interesting, go ahead. it's an interesting theory. But um, in terms of the, the reputation that they have, and you see this with economic forecasters, um, you certainly don't want to be wrong. Um, uh, but what you mainly don't want to be is seem to be wrong uh, in a way Which makes you different to everybody else. There's a reason why economic forecasts aggregate around the mean. They're watching each other. They pay a price for being an outlier in their predictions. They don't pay a price. Um, This is the classic like, well, who could have predicted that? You know, down at the United States Studies Center, 30 academics. On, uh, sitting around on the taxpayer-funded dime watching the US election saying Trump has no chance, and then they all sat around the next day and said, well, who could have predicted that? Mm. It's like, well, I don't know. Rowan, I, Rowan there, Dean, there is, maybe. <laughs> you know, it's, there, it'll be the there same is with these so much.
1: There is so much at stake here right now that these polling companies, um, give. It, like, if they get it wrong this year, a lot of those polling companies will just stop doing political polls because it will be too damaging to their actual business for the stuff that people actually pay them to do. Um, now, I could be wrong, you, you you, might be right, we will find out in two weeks, but there is, there is a clear economic incentive for these people mm. to get it right.
0: Ah, well also, um, also the, the, other, abs- the other factor is national polls are meaningless. I mean, well, no, yeah, yeah, Biden, Biden will win the what popular vote. What we're, what we're talking about. is uh, I
2: hope not for the for the sake of my sports bet account. Um, great odds, but I got it's on. it's the
0: electoral college. It,
2: uh, it's state by state. No, I think I think Trump will win the popular vote this time. Okay. I, th- I think I think you can't. That's a stretch. I, th- I think the look. <laughs> that is a stretch. H- Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, got... Well, I mean, look. This this leads us to an interesting point that because I don't see enthusiasm for. Biden, Chris, you think? And when I was ex- talking, when we were talking about the show, and I'd said that to you on the phone that there's a big enthusiasm gap, you said, "Well, they're enthusiastic to get rid of him." Um, the, the observation I'll make is there was enthusiasm against Barack Obama in 2012. Uh, there was enthusiasm against George W. Bush in 2000, 2004. There was a lot of enthusiasm against Richard Nixon in 1972, and when you look at uh, and they all won and when you look at George McGovern, uh, John Kerry and Mitt Romney, uh, they make jo- you know, Joe Biden makes them look like, uh, you know, Lincoln, Washington, and but Reagan. You can't,
1: you can't, you can't have it both ways getting, you can't say simultaneously mm. that there are people who are wildly enthusiastic for Trump and that's really meaningful, but also there are all these shy Trump voters who don't want to admit that they're pro Trump. Like, like, is the issue, which one is it? That there are, there, there's a massive groundswell of support for Trump or people are scared to be support seen as supportive of Trump?
2: Well, it, as they might say on the drum, you can't look at them as a homogeneous group, Chris. Uh, I, I think there are people who, you know, uh, you know, the, Trump can't get elected on the MAGA brigade alone. The people who drive around with red hats and you know trucks and um, and flags and things like that. Uh, he needs the, the support of you know the quiet Americans as well. Uh, so, so that's to that. But but well, I guess the point I was making is that. Enthusiasm behind a candidate can get a candidate elected. In th- t- historically speaking, in mean, my observation, uh, as far as I'm aware, there's never been a a president incumbent president so bad that they've been rolled by a dud just because they were bad. <laughs> we will find out in two weeks. Well, but, but I mean, you know, as, as again another Roger Stone rule, uh, past is effing prologue. Uh, you know. There there are certain cross-currents, and I think because so much of the American political machine
0: uh,
2: runs on turnout and enthusiasm. Yeah,
0: I I, I think we should close that segment uh, with that quote from a man who has a tattoo of Nixon on his back. The great, thank Roger Stone. You, thank you, Roger Stone. I don't. I don't think we'll be able to top that. Um, uh, that image, unless Chris, you had any closing remarks? No, that, that's
2: that's it. I, yeah. All yeah. I've got is a tattoo from Roger. Uh, thank, from thank
0: you for Roger Stone to, for taking us out. Am I might we- get a tattoo of Tony Abbott or something? I think that'd be pretty cool. Or <laughs> uh, well, Peter Peter Credlin at the moment is flying very high. This brings us to our Books and culture segment where we talk about what we are reading, watching or listening to. Before I throw to Chris, I will say that this is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate. Uh, One of the many benefits of membership is, of course, the IPA review four times a year. In your mailbox, this is on its way to you now. Australia Post, willing, uh, which is a bit of a lottery in Victoria at the moment, but it will get to you, and it will be awesome. And it will talk, amongst other things, um, a great article on the stories of uh, Victorian women experiencing this lockdown as uh, as they've been told to sit down and shut up about it because they're supposed to admire the leadership of Dan Andrews. Uh, so that's one of the many articles you would read as an IPA. Member Chris, what's your culture pick for today?
1: Absolutely. So last night I watched the trial of the Chicago Seven on Netflix. It's a um, historical drama um, by Aaron Sorkin. Of course, everybody knows Aaron Sorkin for being the increasingly unwatchable West Wing. It's increasingly watch- unwatchable as the years pass um, and as Bill Clinton recedes from memory. Um, uh, but the uh, so the movie is about the um, the trial of uh, anti-vietnam protesters anti-vietnam war protesters who were charged with inciting riots outside the 1968 Democratic National Convention it's based around this trial what's what's I'll, I'll say what's fun about it so it's a it's an engaging legal drama um, uh, with the emphasis on the drama rather than the legalities. Um, it's got some uh, enjoyable, uh, so it's got a very enjoyable turn by sasha Baron Cohen um uh, who who plays um oh my god my uh, uh, Abby Hoffman that's it I was almost about to forget um the bizarre character that is Abby Hoffman um, as you watch it if you're not familiar with Abby Hoffman um uh, Abby Hoffman was actually like that um it's uh, it's pretty good actually it, it's pretty good for a Netflix drama in the middle of a pandemic, which we write everything down. We're not getting out to go and see the, the um, high quality movies. We would normally do so. Um, uh, it's very lefty. Obviously it's obviously, um, uh, it, it's obviously being done in the wake of black lives matter. And you can imagine what side it takes on the, the relationship between protest and riots, protest, protest and violence. It's also a typical Aaron Sorkin, Um, show because it's about the divisions in the left. Do you have a sort of bourgeois democratic left or do you have a radical revolutionary left and it's clear that Aaron Sorkin is very much on the bourgeois democratic, you should work through politics and some of the characters that are supposed to stand in for Aaron Sorkin's ideas um, uh, were actually much more, um, much more violent in fact. In practice, than they are depicted to be in the movie, but it is enjoyable. It, um, it it's about a political trial. Um, it's about the decision to make a federal case out of a um, out of violent actions that occur within a individual state. Um, it's about the um, it's about partisanship amongst attorney generals. It's got it, 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 there's a lot in it. It's a tie. It, is, it's very much a film of the Trump era, though. Yeah, is um, that, is I do, that, I do that, recommend you watch is it.
0: Is that debate over the role of violence in politics? Is that do you think that's pointed at the moment? Because I mean, with with um, Antifa running around, it, it's a very yeah, so, it's a very live issue in America. Uh, uh, 100%, where, you know, when the New York 100%. Times starts to sort of say, "Well, you know, maybe in certain circumstances we should be able to torch buildings," you know, hundred percent.
1: I'm not sure when it was filmed. Um, I'm always. Curious about whether we're managing to film movies um, in this period at the moment, but um, uh, it is very pointed to those arguments, and it's really it, it, it's a protest that turned into a riot. And you might say, well, it was always going to be a riot, or it, people attended the protest with the intention of turning it violent, that's really um, uh, that's a sort of subplot of the. Um, uh, Sound like movie. Victoria Police? Is, well, no, no, but it is exactly. It is exactly those questions that the, that is what the movie is about. Yeah. So, um, uh, can you can you protest without violence? Can you um, is there such thing as bourgeois protest
2: yeah. um, or, or middle class protest? Well, what,
0: why it? don't we go straight into Gideon's book then? Because this this is on a related theme, I believe, Gideon. Yeah.
2: Well, look, so I read. So I, my pick today is um, "How Powerful We Are" by Sally Rugg. Um, this is uh, Sally Rugg is the current executive director of Change.org and the former, formerly of GetUp, uh, and the book is her account uh, of the same-sex marriage debate, uh, which was obviously won, uh, and the plebiscite and so on, which was won by GetUp and other groups that were campaigning for same-sex marriage. So I'm reading this book partly because I got into a bit of a back-and-forth with Sally Rugg on Twitter, and uh, I think she dared me to read the book, and I said, yeah, sure, fair enough, because, my, you know, I, I try to read something from the other side here and there. Look, I have to say, I've been enjoying it more than I thought I would. It's a very interesting insight into how GetUp... Works And I've always said, well, firstly, I've been one of the few people on the right, and we at the IPA have been one of the few people on the right to not demand that they try to ban them or shut them down. I've always said, you know, get up to a great job of doing what they're doing. We have to be as good as we, engaging we people. We believe in politics Go, and the context of and, ideas. And free but, um, but secondly, you know, it, it is, you know, people who underestimate them and think they're just a bunch of, you know, uh, nutty ratbags. Uh, there may be people like that in the, in the organisation, but professionally they're very, very good. What was interesting... Uh, is that is the is the way they they knew what they had to do at the start of the campaign which was they knew broadly speaking that you know there was a majority of people who supported same sex marriage about 60 40 which was what the result ultimately was um, so they knew that they 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 didn't have to waste their or they shouldn't waste their time trying to convince people of the merits of the issue they their their um, goal was turnout 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 and knowing that their voters were less likely to even know where their post box was in fact I remember when I was working in the, in the Abbott government at the time and they announced the plebiscite I turned to a colleague and I said look if they really wanted to gear it and sh- and, and make sure it didn't pass they'd make it a voluntary postal plebiscite because that would favor the, the no case anyway so uh, look a lot I disagree with obviously um, uh she, you know she does make a a compelling human and very sympathetic case about you know the argument that we shouldn't have had the plebiscite debate because it was hurtful to lgbt kids and so on i, I can't and, and don't agree with with that i don't think we should be shutting down debates on the basis of them being hurtful i don't agree with the plebiscite cuz i think it was an expensive straw poll um but the other thing is, look, there were some things of value to me it's from a, that
0: book. I mean, the, it, it seems though. Um, I mean, it's a nice issue to focus on and a good story, but it's sort of obviously better to focus on that one than how get up went at the last federal election. Oh well, that's true too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and well, maybe well, millions and millions of dollars. But that was for, a strategic, to,
2: virtually no result. Well, they got Abbott's scalp, and that's you know where they spent their resources. And if they hadn't done that, Bill Shorten might be the PM. But I mean, look, the the other things that I should mention that are valuable to me coming out of it was I didn't. I think there's a lot of history about, um, you know, persecution of, of gay and lesbian people in Australia that I was tangentially aware of but didn't know the details of. And, look, you know, when you look at the police brutality in the 70s, it is a really, really shocking chapter
0: in our history. Um, yeah, fancy, and, and f- fancy people being arrested in their own homes and taken away in handcuffs. Well, yeah, well... It's terrible, isn't c- it? Well, correct. Good I mean, thing the Victoria Police more, doesn't
2: do that anymore. I wish more progressives were, uh, were 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 red hot on that issue. but And also... Um, I think there's a bit of an assumption now that same-sex marriage just happened because people realise that, you know, who cares who people marry and everything else. I think, and the book makes this point, and I I think there's something in it, that it underplays how LGBT organisations have lobbied very well and very consistently over a very long period of time for equal gay rights, including, you know... um, Gay marriage, and I say that as a marriage deregulationist, not as a you know, necessarily somebody who thought we should change the marriage act. Um, you know, in my lifetime, and I've been a, I've, I'm a 33 years old. In my lifetime, gay marriage has gone from being an absurdity to uh, totally almost, you know, almost universally accepted, other than people with genuine religious reasons, uh, a, sta- a staple of society. So, yeah, look, glad, glad I, glad mm. I. Had to read, and uh, no, certainly worth and, worthwhile and, exercise. And
0: good on you for your commitment to diversity of opinion. Uh, I'm am a broad church, Scott. I'm a absolutely. No, very good. Uh, well, I have some light relief, um, which is um, a program called TED Lesso, which is on uh, Apple TV, because uh, you can never have too many streaming services under a lockdown. And um, uh, I've got the little box TED Lesso. It's a uh, it's nice. It was fun, and it's really well done. Um, so. I, I didn't understand from the trailers what it's about but the, the concept is that there's this English Premier League football club that hires an American to be its coach mm. and not just an American but someone who's just been pulled out of, um, of, of college football who comes in knowing nothing about soccer. All he has is his coaching style, his, um, uh, his people management uh, but is completely ignorant of, of soccer. You know, hilarity ensues. And um, he's got, you know, broad Kansas accent. I was, it looks like, what is this? And I avoided it for a couple of months. It's, but it's actually really well done. It, it started, it was a joke originally. So Jason, Jason Sudeikis or Sudeikis um, is a Saturday Night Live guy. So I was completely unaware of his existence. And he they did this skit for NBC, essentially. They created this character mm. um, doing exactly what I talked about a few years ago. Um, and uh, made a joke of it, and they could. And so when they made a series of it, when they optioned the series, they could have just made that a one joke sort of show of you know here's this American guy. He's he's it's a clash of styles. He's American. He's up. He's optimistic. You know, believe in yourself. All this kind of thing, as opposed to Americans who mm. drink drink pot, uh, sorry, as opposed to the English who drink pints. Uh, they're all negative, um, and uh, and the and the players. Uh, aren't that interested in this kind of thing. So they did that, but the show actually rounds out all of the surrounding characters, Mm. creates this story arc. It's revealed reasonably quickly that the reason he's been hired is not because he's this inspirational guy who can transform this struggling club, is hired because the owner of the club wants it to tank. <laughs> she got it in the divorce mm. and she wants it to fail just to annoy her ex-husband. Uh, sorry, bit of a plot spoiler, but it comes mm. it comes around pretty quickly. Um, and uh, so I really enjoyed uh, Ted Lasso. Uh, there's a strong supporting cast, lots of good characterisation. It actually gets like 87 on IMDb, the critics hated it. They thought it was maudlin and not funny enough. Mm. Um, but so sorry,
2: run that by me again. What's, what's the popular reaction versus the critics' reaction? Well, I
0: think it's the critics. What, what was
2: the IMDb score again? Sorry,
0: eight point seven.
2: Okay, so it's another Dave Chappelle uh, dynamic where you know the Rotten Tomatoes score. The, the critics were you know, hated it, and the mm. fans were Gaga.
0: Good. Yeah, like- yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it was because. Um, uh they didn't do it a laugh a minute they actually uh, thought that they invested in the characters yeah. a little bit and and god knows we need a little bit of joy in our life we need a bit of positivity yeah. we actually i found myself wanting a bit of ted lasso and his and his optimistic positive notes. even if it is you, you don't get enough of that from yeah. me
2: scott <laughs> <laughs> My I'm, I'm, disposition.
0: Always, I'm always inspired by you gideon um as i have yeah. been on this program uh thank you again for joining us on Looking Forward. My pleasure as always. Uh, might might see you again in a fortnight as we do the wash-up of the election. Yeah. And we'll see what kind of shape you're in. Uh, thanks also to my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. And Scott. Um, some fine leadership today, Chris. Leadership
1: thank you. and management on your part. Your
0: leadership well. and management. You can you can split it up. You just divide and conquer. It's all the same <laughs> thing. Uh, so, and thank you to you, our listeners. You've been listening to uh, a product of the IPA. Uh, please do go to IPA.org.au to see how you can join or donate. Thanks also to Mitch in the control room. We'll be back with more next week.